If we haven't met yet, my name's Mark, and it's my pleasure to serve as one of the elders here, and it's my joy to be back, uh, having just had a three-month sabbatical, so thank you for that. I want to offer a special congratulations to anyone with young children that got here on time today. You deserve a medal. Respect you for that. Um, and, uh, and, and church, um, I just want to, before we move into the message, just take a few minutes to first thank you for the sabbatical. I was able to have a three-month sabbatical, and I'm humbled and grateful. Thank you for your generosity to give to our church to make that possible. Thank you for your encouragement to do that and your prayers for that. My understanding is that Sabbath rest is designed to be a rest from work, but also a rest for work. It's a rest in between work, and, and I'm excited to be back working, serving in, in, in this church and really in back home. I love being here. Um, during the, the three months away, just, just a, a brief uh, overview to, to be able to say thank you. Without a doubt, the highlight of the sabbatical was to only have to shave once a week and to be able to wear sweats every day. It was awesome. <laughs> Loved that. I uh, was able to go to California. Leslie and I had an extended trip over the holidays, and then I went back and visited my family a second time in February. My mom is recovering uh, from, from an aneurysm. Thank you for your care and, and interest and prayers for her. Um, I was able to, uh, during the time here, have some uh, opportunity to do some study and, and, and reading in early church history. In fact, the, the story of Blandina that I'm going to tell you at the beginning of the message came out of that study. And I read a book called City of God by Augustine, St. Augustine, uh, written in the early 400s that I've always wanted to read and never uh, had the courage to really uh, uh, attack that thousand-page tome. So thank you to Brian and Andy, who were my book club buddies, to help me get through that. Um, and just grateful for an opportunity to have some extended time to rest and think and pray and meet with God and do some painting around the house and spend some extra time with Leslie. And um, one of the sweetest parts of the sabbatical was as much as we missed being here, and it was weird to even to be local on a Sunday and not, not come here, we really enjoyed visiting other churches. We really enjoyed the communion of saints. And... Um, we had the joy of, of visiting a number of, of uh, churches, and particularly a number of predominantly African-American churches, uh, uh, several in, in this area. And, and that was just, just sweet to experience the body of Christ in that way. One of the churches that we visited uh, was Mission Church in Norfolk. You heard from Charles Shannon a few weeks ago. And then we also visited Mercy of Christ uh, Fellowship in Lincoln Heights, D.C. We heard from Jeremy uh, last Sunday, we, Jeremy and I had the same cold last Sunday, and I was actually ended up home last Sunday, uh, uh, unable to talk, and I felt for him trying to preach with his sore throat. But I want to encourage you, if you're on your way to or from the Outer Banks, get to Norfolk on a Sunday morning and, and go to Mission Church. And I might get in trouble for saying this, but if you want to play hooky one Sunday and go visit Mercy of Christ, you have my encouragement to, to, to do that. Um, and uh, I, I do really hope that this time of rest will result in just me being able to serve the Lord and, and, and serve you more effectively in the days to come. So thank you for that, for that time. This morning, um, we are in the Gospel of Mark. The series is titled, Follow Me, and we've come to the, the passage from which that, that Follow Me sort of most centrally uh, emanates. This is really the ultimate 
call to discipleship from Jesus himself to anyone who has ears to hear. And so this is a sweet passage of Scripture. We're in Mark 8, 31 through 9, 1. We're using the English Standard Version as the translation that you're about to hear uh, the, the Scripture read in. And Bridget Ennis is going to be our Scripture reader this morning. So thank you, Bridget, for bringing God's Word to us. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on things of God, but on the things of man. And he called to him the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his life? For what can a man give in return for his life? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. This is the word of the Lord. Let's, let's pray. Oh God, we know that you are present among us. We believe those words that we just heard are not empty words. They are our life. They are your living word to us. We know that we too easily see things from a human perspective and not from your perspective. And so we pause before we talk over these words and, and open up this passage to say, oh, great God, would you give us ears to hear these words from your perspective. Give us eyes to see the world, eternity, our lives, and your kingdom. Give us eyes to see them from your perspective, not from merely a human perspective. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I, I love this section of the Gospel of Mark. It's like a vista point where you pull over and you get this big overview and this section of the Gospel of, of Mark, we get the big picture of who Jesus is, of what he's come to do, and of what it means to follow him. And if you're not sure what it means to be a Christian, if you're investigating Christianity, if you're wondering what it means to be a Christian, verse 34 is a verse to get a hold of and hang on to. In fact, if you're a Christian, Verse 34 is a verse to get a hold of and hang on to. All of Scripture is inspired by God, but there are these hot spots in God's Word that you want to pay special attention to, and verse 34 is one of those places. What, is it, what does it mean to be a Christian? What is a Christian? Well, verse 34, hear it again. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Those are the words of Jesus giving us a functional definition of what a Christian is. Now, what I want to do is I want to start by telling you a story of this lady, Blandina, who lived this way, and then, then we're going to consider how Jesus makes it possible and even desirable to live this way. Blandina was a, a slave girl 
living in Gaul, which is modern-day France. She lived there in the second century, and she lived during a time when the locals had become hostile to Christians and began to persecute and even kill Christians. Here's the account that comes to us from a letter from the second century. On the last day of the games, Blandina was again brought in with Ponticus, a lad of about 15. Each day they'd been led in to watch the torturing and were urged to swear by the idols. Furious at their steadfast refusal, they showed no sympathy for the boy's youth or respect for the woman, but subjected them to every torture. Ponticus was heartened by his sister in Christ and bravely endured each horror until he gave up his spirit. Ponticus was 15 years old. Last of all, the blessed Blandina, like a noble mother who had comforted her children and sent them on triumphantly to the king, she rejoiced at her own departure as if invited to a wedding feast. After the whips, the beasts, and the gridiron, she was finally put into a net and thrown to a bull. Indifferent to circumstances through faith in Christ, she was tossed by the animal for some time before being sacrificed. The heathen admitted that never before had a woman suffered so much so long. They did this as if to conquer God. As they said, now let's see if they will rise again and if their God will save them. Yes, indeed. Let's see if they will rise again. And let's see if their God won't save them. What is a Christian? Jesus tells us here that a Christian is anyone who denies himself, and takes up his cross, and follows Jesus. Now, relatively few of Jesus' followers will die as a direct result of following him, as Blandina did. But all of us are called to die to self, all of us are called to take up a cross, and all of us are called to follow him. So I want to ask you a question. How was it that Blandina was able to live that way? What must a person believe about Jesus Christ in order to be willing to take up a cross, deny oneself, and follow him? What must you believe about yourself in order to live that self-denying cross-carrying, Christ-following way. What does it look like to live that way? This passage will open these things up for us. This passage hinges around verse 34, and that verse is a powerful call from Jesus Christ that reaches into this room and into living rooms through live stream here today. Jesus is calling anyone who has ears to hear to Deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow him. This isn't an easy way to live. Oh, but it's the best way to live. And it's the only way to true life, to real life. So let's open these up through these questions. First, what, what must we believe about Jesus in order to live this way? What, what did Blandina believe that enabled her to persevere like that? What did Ponticus, a teenager, believe that enabled him to live that way? 
Well, living that way starts with a life-changing vision of Jesus Christ. Look back at verse 31 with me, please. Please keep your Bibles open as we go through this. Verse 31, And he, Jesus, began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Now, as you read through the Gospel of Mark, this is the first of three predictions that Jesus is giving about his suffering and his death. There'll be another one in chapter 9 and another one in chapter 10. And he says this in sort of a strange way. He talks about himself in the third person. He says, the Son of Man must suffer, be rejected, die, and rise again. Who is this Son of Man? What's he talking about? Well, the Son of Man is Jesus' favorite description for himself, his favorite title that he takes for himself. Peter has just before this re revealed that he is or, or said that he is the, the, the Messiah, the, the Christ, and so Jesus is. But that title comes with so much baggage, so much misunderstanding that Jesus doesn't want to take that for himself yet. And so he describes himself as the Son of Man, a more ambiguous term that comes out of Daniel 7, where it points to an omnipotent king. But there's an unexpected twist here, a twist that none of the disciples expected, a twist that the people there didn't expect from the Messiah, and that is that Jesus, as the Son of Man, would suffer many things, be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed. Jesus says, hear this, Jesus says the Son of Man must experience these things must suffer, be rejected, and die. Why? Why was this necessary? Now, Jesus doesn't tell us explicitly here, but Mark will explain more shortly. And so we're going to just peek ahead to two spots to understand why he must suffer, die, and rise again. Look at chapter 9 and verse 12. Jesus is explaining that Elijah is going to first come to restore all things. And then he says, and how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? The key phrase there is, it is written. How is it written of the Son of Man that he would suffer? Well, when he says it's written, he's referring to prophecies from the Old Testament. God had spoken that this would come about, and what God says always comes to pass. No more clear place can we go than Isaiah 53, 3. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, as we just sang, and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not." So he must suffer and die to fulfill God's plan. This was how God had said it was going to come about. But there's a little more to it because we say, well, okay, God said it was going to happen, but why did it need to happen? And he explains that for us in chapter 10 and verse 45. Another one of those hot spot verses to get a hold of and hang on to in the Gospel of Mark. For even the Son of Man, there's that title again, came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. If you were here for last Sunday's message, 
God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. God gave his son, and the son willingly gave his life. Why? As a ransom for many. What does that mean? The ransom for many means Jesus has come to give his life in payment to set slaves free. What slaves? Free from what captivity? Slaves, us, sinners, freed from the captivity to sin. Jesus has come and he will die not by accident, not because he was overcome by some force greater than, than him, but he came to atone for human sin. He came to pay the ransom price so that we could be set free. Without his death, without this perfect sacrifice, sinners like us could never have life. Look at the cross. Can you see Jesus suffering and dying? That's how bad our sin is. Look at the cross. Can you see Jesus suffering and dying? That's how great his love is for you. God so loved the world. What must you believe about Jesus in order to be willing to live for him and even perhaps die for him like Blandina? This is what you must believe that this great Christ came and gave his life as a ransom for sinners like you. Can you put your name in there for you? Of course, none of this is clear to the disciples. We've got the benefit of the rest of the gospel and the work of the Holy Spirit and the rest of the New Testament. They are shocked by this. Messiahs don't suffer. The Son of Man can't die. And so Peter does what everybody else is thinking. I, I, I appreciate Peter because he just says what everybody else is, is probably thinking but unable to, uh, unwilling to say. He says, Lord, there is no way that's going to happen. Kind of over my dead body are you going to die. And Jesus rebukes him, calls him Satan, which means adversary, and he says, get out of my way. I'm the leader here. You follow me. That's how discipleship works. What must we believe about Jesus in order to live as a self-denying, cross-carrying, Christ-following disciple? We, we must believe that he came to give his life as a ransom, to set you free to be able to do that. That's what we must believe about him. What about ourselves? What about ourselves? Well, the, the latter part of this passage reveals a couple of things we need to understand about ourselves if we're going to be able to live this way. What, was, what must we believe about ourselves in order to live this way? I want to warn you, spoiler alert, this is not flattering. Okay, this is actually incredibly insulting to human beings who think they know how to live and have, have confidence in, in where their lives are going. Because the first thing Jesus says that we must believe about ourselves is this. He says, we must believe that our instincts about how to find real life are actually dead wrong. 
If you think you know how to find a good life on your own, you are wrong. That's what Jesus is saying here. Just think about it. What makes for a great life? If you engage the people in your world with that question, what, what kinds of things will, will people say? Well, you know, follow your heart. Go for your dreams. Seek, seek to be successful. You do you. If you would live a happy and authentic life, you must be free to fulfill your feelings and your desires. That's the heartbeat of the expressive individualism of our day. And Jesus says, the problem when you think that way is that you're like Peter. You're seeing things from a human perspective and not from God's. Hear Jesus' words to us in verse 35. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. Saving your life. What does it mean to save your life in a way that results in loss? Saving your life is the opposite of self-denial. It's saying yes to yourself. It's self-improvement. It's self-help. And so we set our hearts on gaining what we want most, wealth, comfort, pleasure, success, popularity. That's saving your life. When you set the course of your life to fill your life with those aims and goals, Jesus comes along and says, hey, you know what? No matter how well you do at that, you're going to die. And when you die, you lose it all. And if you live that way, when you die, you will be cut off forever from the giver of life. That's what hell is. You'll be separated from God under his judgment forever. You lose. If you save your life, if you do what comes instinctively and naturally to you, you lose. Proverbs 14 says it this way. There's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. This is a hard pill to swallow. It's not flattering to human beings like us. But it's the, it's the entry into life if we can get a hold of this. We must know that that default human nature inside of us is fallen and wayward and disordered and corrupt. And the solution isn't to try to fix it. You don't just need some repairs. You need a new life. And the good news is that Jesus has come to offer that. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his life? What's the answer? It's a rhetorical question. The answer is nothing. Think about it. You gain Every desire, every goal, everything that you want, if you are able to get it, what do you gain? Nothing. What does it profit a man or a woman to gain the whole world and forfeit their lives? Nothing. This is what the book of Ecclesiastes is all about. The writer of Ecclesiastes had the opportunity to pursue those pursuits and found emptiness, vanity, chasing after wind. 
But the upside-down nature of this is, if you lose everything, you gain Christ, and you find that with him, everything else comes to. So we must believe that our instincts about how to find real life are dead wrong. Have you, have you come to terms with that in yourself? Is there that self-suspicion, that self-doubt with that inner compass? Jesus comes and challenges us to rethink our self-confidence in ordering and directing our lives. The second thing we must believe about ourselves is found in verse 38. He says, For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. We must believe that we can overcome the fear of shame in order to make Christ known. That's what Jesus is talking about here. He's saying there are people who are going to live ashamed of him in this life. And he's saying when he comes back in the glory of his second coming, he'll be ashamed of those people then. Now, why does he say this? Well, first, he wants to remind us. He wants us to know it's a fact that this world will come to an end, that he will return. Now, that's worth pausing and remembering. Because I can pretty much guarantee you that nothing in your world, as you're circulating in the world, reminds you of that, does it? The world that we live in has a horizon that ends at your funeral and goes nowhere beyond that. But Jesus says, this age will come to an end, and he will come as the glorious king, bringing judgment with him. Those who've been ashamed of Jesus and his words in this life, well, Jesus will be ashamed of them then. But those who've welcomed, taken up their cross, welcomed that instrument of shame, those who've welcomed rejection and humiliation for Jesus' sake in this life, Jesus will welcome them into his kingdom. Jesus is teaching us here something that's really helpful to know, and that is, look, if you follow him, and you desire to make him known to others, you know, it's not always going to go well. Have you figured that out, <laughs> right? That's how it works. Sometimes you'll experience rejection. Sometimes you'll experience resistance. Sometimes you'll experience opposition. Sometimes you'll experience withdrawal. Sometimes it gets even worse than that. But Jesus has given you his Holy Spirit. And the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead lives and works in you. And so you can overcome that fear of shame that so often leaves us quiet when we could be speaking. You have the power of the Holy Spirit living in you to enable you to speak and to make Christ known even at cost. And I can look back at my own life and think of, moments. I remember sitting at a lunch table as I was getting ready to go away to go to seminary. And I was sitting, I ended up having lunch with the president of the, the company and, 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 and uh, one of the other uh, leaders of the company. And they said, are you going to seminary? Are you going to try to convert us? Well, what an opportunity. And what did I do with that opportunity? I kind of swallowed my cheeseburger and didn't 
do much more than mumble. I was ashamed. I'm, I was embarrassed. That happens to me. That, that impulse works in most of us, I think, lots of the time. But you know what? Because we've been raised with Christ, because the same spirit that raised him from the dead lives within us, that doesn't have to be the end of the story, and that doesn't have to control us the rest of our lives. And by God's grace, I've had other times when I've been able to faithfully, sometimes even boldly, declare my allegiance to him. Christian, are you willing to take the risk of making Christ known to others? If you will live a self-denying, cross-carrying, Christ-following life, you will be given many opportunities by God to make Christ known to others so that they can enter into the joy of knowing him too. It's not easy. In my experiences, it never gets easy. But Jesus sends you and me into our world to proclaim him to others. That's how the good news spreads. So are you willing to tell that family member what you really believe about Jesus and not shave off the tough spots? Are you willing to be honest with coworkers about Jesus' standards? See, Jesus says, ashamed of me and my words. Are you willing to be honest in an appropriate way at the right time? We're not talking about intentionally making yourself irritating so that you get persecuted so that you feel like you're holy. We're talking about exercising wisdom, being led by the Spirit, but are we willing to be honest about what Jesus has to say about life in this world, about holiness, about sexuality, or marriage, or money, or whatever it might be? What's funny? All these things. Are you willing to identify as a follower of Christ to be all in with him, even if it causes trouble? We need to understand both that our instincts about the way to find a good life are wrong. That's why Augustine said, your hearts are restless till you come to rest in him. You chase after what you think you want, and it's elusive, it's a mirage, and it never satisfies. But oh, Christ does. And having come to know him then, we need to know about ourselves that it's going to be an uphill battle to proclaim him to others. There's an enemy that's waging war against us. There's the flesh that's working inside of us. But oh, the Spirit of God is greater than those things. So what does it look like? How can we live this way? Back to verse 34. Just a few reflections on, on these few things. Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Last week, we heard from John 3.16 that a Christian is someone who believes in Jesus, right? What, is it, what does belief look like in action? This verse meshes wonderfully with John 3.16. John 3.16 is what you believe. Mark 8.34 is belief put in action. It's functionalized. I want you to hear this, this little section of this passage as it's uh, uh, put together in the message paraphrase. Anyone who intends to come with me has to let me lead. You're not in the driver's seat. I am. Don't run from suffering. Embrace it. Follow me and I'll show you how. Self-help is no help at all. Self-sacrifice is the way, my way to saving yourself, your true self. So how do we do this? Well, let's start by saying, 
hey, it's easier to talk about it than it is to do it, isn't it? Right? My experience is, again, it doesn't get easier. Self-denial has never gotten easier for me the longer I've been a Christian. It's always hard, which is why we need continually to behold the glory of the triune God. We need continually to take in his word, to be comforted and encouraged by his spirit, and fellowshipping with, with the saints of this great God who's brought us into his family. But he does call us, brothers and sisters, to deny ourselves. Now, this is utterly counterintuitive. But remember, this is the king talking. This is the son of man talking. And this isn't just something for a few people or spiritual elites. This is something that's open to anyone and called to everyone. If anyone would come after me, you and you and you and people in the first century and the 10th century and people in this century and people in North America and in Europe and in Asia and everywhere, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. Again, our default condition is to treat life as though we're in charge, to think that we're self-determining and autonomous and in control. And Jesus is teaching us that you can't live that way. We're not here to please ourselves, to serve ourselves or follow ourselves. We're here to deny ourselves. We're not actually autonomous. We're not actually self-determining. We don't determine when we're born. We don't determine who our parents are. And we don't determine a million other things that we can't control about our lives. There is a self-determining person. There is an autonomous, independent person in the universe. And who's that? That would be God. So when we seek to live that way, we're actually seeking to displace God and be what only God can be. So when Jesus says, deny yourself, what he's saying is deny that part of yourself that wants to take charge and be in control and be autonomous and be self-determining in the way that only God can and learn to live in humble dependence on him. Second, he says, take up your cross. This would have been a shocking, astonishing thing to say. The Romans developed crucifixion as a tool of terror. It was designed to inflict two things, maximum pain and maximum humiliation. That's why crucifixions were done in public places, often on busy streets. And Jesus says, I want you to take up that cross beam, that sideways beam that the, that the, the condemned would need to drag or carry to their crucifixion. He says, I want you to to, to do that, you're going to live a life that involves discomfort, humiliation, and difficulty. Hold your applause. These are Jesus' words to us. It's hard to live this way, isn't it? Why would anyone live this way? Sounds foolish. Stupid. Who would want to live this way? What is it that we must know about Jesus to live this way? That's the best part. Follow me. Follow me. He's not just saying follow some teachings. Not just saying follow a book. Not just saying follow some ideas. He's saying come into a life-giving relationship with the triune God who made you, who gives you breath right now, who redeemed you, welcomes you into his family. 
This isn't some weird contest to see who can endure the most and suffer the most. Jim Elliott, a missionary who died a martyr, famously said, he is no fool who loses what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool who loses what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. What can you not lose? Christ. And if you lose everything and you have Christ, you win. If you lose everything and you have Christ, you gain. The economics of that equation work. Christ is the pearl of great price. Christ is the treasure that your heart longs for. We gain Christ and we gain eternal life, his spirit in us now, and a place in a new creation in God's presence in the absence of sin and Satan living forever in paradise. Now, Jesus says, I will baptize you with the Spirit. You have been baptized with the Spirit, brothers and sisters. You are filled with, with power from on high so that you can know him, love him, obey him, proclaim him to others, and walk with him as a pilgrim, as a sojourner, as an exile on your way to heaven. Oh, brothers and sisters, it's a hard way to live, but whose spirit lives in you? Didn't Christ die to win you? Doesn't the Father smile upon you? Oh, fear not, little flock. If you suffer with Christ, you will also be united with him in his glorious resurrection. Christian, what would you be willing to lose for Jesus' sake and for the gospel? Would you be willing to lose close friendships in your church here in order maybe to be part of a church plant sometime? Would you be willing to lose your career security to take a job in another country, maybe for the sake of the gospel? Would you be willing to lose the hope of having your kids or grandkids close by for the sake of Jesus' kingdom? Would you be willing to lose a bit of sleep during Hypo Week to make breakfast for the guests? What is a Christian? A Christian is anyone who will deny himself and take up his cross and follow Jesus. And when we begin to do that, it leads to a whole new way of living. And I just marvel at the Spirit's wisdom at how this passage has been set up to precede the coming short series on generosity because I don't know a better verse to set up talking about generosity than Mark chapter 8 and verse 34. Oh, how God loves us. And oh, how God is committed to working in us to conform us to the image of his son. What's a Christian? It's a self-denying, cross-carrying, Christ-following person who's already gained a great treasure that can never be lost, Christ.